Hey everybody, welcome to Inking of Immunity. I am Chris, I am a biocultural medical anthropologist at the University of Alabama, and I'm here with my co-host. Mike Smetana, I'm a PhD student at the University of Alabama. And I am Becky Owens. I am a lecturer in psychology at the University of Sunderland. And here in Alabama, we are on day two of a snow day, which means we got a little dusting. My car wouldn't start. The dog's water was frozen. And actually, giving myself an out here in case I have difficulty pronouncing anything. My mind and mouth are frozen to a flagpole. So I'm a little thick tongued. Apologies to our listeners for those things. Um, we're going to talk to Dion Casas, who <laughs> is a cultural tattoo practitioner and indigenous scholar. And he's been working as a cultural tattoo practitioner in the revival of indigenous tattooing on Turtle Island. What those of us who descended from the colonizers call North America and since 2012. I got to say, um, one of the things I want to ask him about today is to be specific about his cultural background because we tend to whitewash indigeneity as one big monolithic thing and, and we, want to, we want to get away from that. So let me give you a little bit more about our guest. He was trained as a tattoo artist uh, in 2009 under Carla Romaniuk from Vertigo Tattoos and Body Piercing in British Columbia. He now lives and works in Halifax, Nova Scotia at HFX Tattoo. You guys use the initials. Yeah. Um, he is an indigenous person of mixed Hungarian, Métis, interior, and interior Salish heritage in an urban Bill C-31 member of the Lower Nicola Indian Band in Merritt, British Columbia. And I'm going to ask him to unpack all of that for us, right? Because it's important for a variety of reasons. We all are products of where we came from in our background. I met Dion uh, via his indigenoustattooing.com project because he has been studying indigenous tattooing all over the world for a number of years. And uh, we crossed paths via a Samoan Tattoo Festival where he had done some recording. And then we, my collaborator and I stumbled on his film and then his tattoo medicine project. And he's got a beautiful sweatshirt on today for those of you, for those of you who can't See, which is everyone, except my co-host. He's got a beautiful sweatshirt <laughs> called that says Tattoo Medicine. But he started this project uh, as an undergraduate research project. And if you dig into his website, you see that he carried it through as a master's thesis. There, there's a video project where he interviews indigenous tattoo cultural practitioners, tattoo artists, depending on how you use the terminology. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So he's been delving into for a number of years what we're just now dipping our toes into. But hey, Dion, how are you? Good. I'm uh, glad to be here and excited to have a conversation about the work that you all have been doing, as well as the stuff that I, you know, I've been uh, working at and doing. Because in my culture, we have a definite emphasis on the reality that all voices are important, even the most annoying voices. So even if I find your voices annoying or your opinions, it's still important. I don't think I will, but I just put that out there that it's important just to speak your truth and live in your reality. And the way we come to a better sense of whatever we're looking at, whether that's tattooing or a way to govern ourselves or whatever it may be, 
that all of our voices are important in this conversation. So I'm thankful to be here and honored that you have asked me to be one of the voices in this conversation. Why don't we just jump into it? I, um, tell us about your background and then how you got into all this, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll just uh, officially introduce myself because it's important for us as Indigenous people to do some positioning. So, and part of that positioning is to allow for us to find connections, to allow us to be able to understand where we each come from and where we stand. So, uh, my name is Dion Kazis. I'm a Hungarian Métis and Intlakatm cultural tattoo practitioner, cultural Indigenous professional tattoo artist, and an Indigenous scholar. So, oh, Actually, you were talking about Urban Bill C-31 and those type of things. I think those are important to unpack. In the 1800s, there was a form of legislation enacted in Canada called the Indian Act. And the Indian Act was legislation that governed the lives and lands of Indian people. I actually have a card which says that I'm an Indian person under the Indian Act. So Indian is a word in Canada that refers to people who have uh, their Indian status, it's called. And so I said a Bill C-31, and part of the Indian Act created these ways of defining who and who isn't an Indian person. So if you were a non-Indian person, you couldn't live on reserve. So you couldn't live with your family. You had to live in the non-Indian community. And so one of the things that actually happened through this legislation is if an Indian woman married either a non-Indian man or a man that was non-status, an Indigenous man who was non-status, they actually lost their status and they had to move off the reserve. Their children could not inherit that status. If you went to war, when you came home, your Indian status was taken away. You know, uh, you went to university, you went to college and you got a degree, you were enfranchised. And so what enfranchisement was, was a way of saying that, well, now you're part of the dominant culture and you're no longer part of your Indian culture. And so, you know, it's a, a really complicated legal process that was put forward to eliminate Indian people. And in Canada, it was called the Indian problem. At a certain point, the primarily Indigenous women, Indian women, went to the Supreme Court and changed the legislation to have Bill C-31. So that changed some of that sexist legislation in the Indian Act so that we could inherit. And I, and I think it's important to acknowledge that because that means that, you know, I grew up off of my, my ancestral territory outside of my reserve or my reserve community, my ancestral community. But, you know, my mom grew up off the reserve in our traditional territory. Um, so that's important to put forward that, you know, this is the reality that we are working through and living through as Indian people, as Indigenous people in Canada. In that one little statement of an urban Bill C-31 member of the Lower Nicola Indian Bank. And then on my dad's side of the family, you know, I uh, mentioned that I'm Hungarian. So in the 1920s, my Hungarian 
great, great grandparents came uh, actually to Halifax, I think it was 1924, and then started migrating over and then connected with the Métis side of my dad's family, which, you know, when I talk about Métis is a combination of Indigenous people, usually from the Plains and usually French people coming together having children and creating a community that is its own culture. So it has its own language. Uh, we have our own uh, dances, our own music, all of these different cultural elements that were created through the marriage of Indigenous and settler people. And so they became their own Indigenous collective and community. And so that's, you know, kind of the history of who I am. And it's important for me to bring that forward and to give context to the fuller reality of who I am. Of course, I love tattoos, you know, right from when I was very little. You know, I can remember tattoos on my uncle's arms, one of them from uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. And he would always refer to himself as a Mexican. So, you know, these tattoos associated with what he found as his culture. I know some people may find that terminology to be offensive, but that's how he referred to himself. So I'm going to allow him to speak from his own reality. And then my uncle, my other uncle on my mom's side, went into the military and did some military service. And so he had some tattoos from that time in the military. So that was my first kind of experience of tattoos. And I always thought they were really cool and, you know, made them look real tough and pretty dope dudes, right? And then... Uh, you know, I just love tattoos and continue to be enthralled by them, look at them, the imagery, you know, just in tattoo shops, etc. And then got tattooed. Life has taken a lot of different ups and downs. And I ended up in a tattoo shop in 2006. And I was getting work done on my right sleeve. And as I was sitting there, you know, I was sorting through all of the magazines on the table. I looked and I found this little tiny pamphlet called Tattooing Face and Body Painting of the Thompson Indians by the anthropologist James Tate. And the reason I say Thompson Indians is because for us as Indigenous people, everybody who came to our communities, our nations, our territories had a different name for who we are. So one of the rivers that goes through our territory is the Thompson River. So they called us the Thompson Indians. We refer to ourselves as the Inflicatum. So that's our word, the way we refer to ourselves. So it was a little pamphlet on our tattooing tradition. And up to that point, I didn't realize that we had a tattooing tradition. I always say that my head just about popped off when I realized that we had tattooing tradition. Even though I wasn't in an undergraduate program, I didn't have a degree, I thought, oh, I could do master's research on this. Don't ask me why I, you know, that went through my head, but that's what went through my head. Cause at that time I was working as a bartender and a bouncer in the nightclubs. And so I wasn't even, you know, registered to get a undergrad, let alone a graduate degree. How old were you? Uh, uh, 20 something, late twenties, I would say. Right on. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I, time went on. I, got into my undergraduate degree, which started in Indigenous Studies and Philosophy, so a double degree. And then uh, I started my tattoo apprenticeship after I had to withdraw from my undergraduate degree for the first round at UBC Okanagan because I had uh, ruptured my spleen as a kickboxing instructor and poisoned my blood. 
I had to have open heart surgery, so I withdrew from school. During that recovery recovery process, I started my apprenticeship. Uh, my friend, who became my mentor, Carla Romanuk, I heard she was looking for an apprentice, so I went up. I got all my little drawings together, of course, as every person who wants to get an apprenticeship does is gets their portfolio together took it into the shop and she's like yeah yeah these are really good uh go do some with some color in them because of course you know a lot of times when we sketch and we draw it's just line work right and I came back and you know I think it was on the third time she's like okay well you can hang out at the shop if you want and so I'd hang out and she'd ask me do you want to do the stencil for me you know, what about this drawing? What would you change? And then finally she was like, okay, well, you have an apprenticeship. And so that's why I started my apprenticeship in 2009. That sounds awesome. I was, I was curious about your tattoo apprenticeship and your um, development as a practitioner. Could you just tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's important to give some more context to the story so that I can move into, you know, your question. So as I entered into my undergraduate degree, like I said, at UBC Okanagan in Kelowna, and when I was there, uh, one of my professors brought forward, uh, it was called Indigenous Historical Perspectives. And I started to think, oh, you know, I know there's a historical question that I want to look at. And that was, of course, at the time in 2006, when I found that pamphlet, I didn't write down the title. And so I started to find that document again. And so I found out what was happening in the revival of Indigenous tattooing in California with L. Frank, what was happening in Hawaii with Kione Nunez, in New Zealand in Aotearoa with the Maori revival there, and start to build an understanding of what the revival of ancestral tattooing practices was doing for Indigenous people in other parts of the world. And so I started to look through as many databases as I could find for evidence of specifically photographs of our in tattooing. And through that process, you know, of the course, my question was, what remains of evidence other than what I've already found? And so I started to look at that. And then I started to look into our basketry designs, starting to look into our rock art designs. And I started to look at painted clothing, all of the different ways that encompass our visual language. Uh, a lot of times we separate, well, these are tattoo images, these are rock art images, these are basketry patterns, but it's all one visual language that communicates our life and worldview. And because I knew what was happening in the revival, El Frank Manriquez, who's Tongvana Jokma, says that today our youth are like seaweeds without roots. And she says that our tattooing is a way to root our young people into our cultures and our communities. And so I mentioned that I had ruptured my spleen as a kickboxing instructor. Well, one of my students, young man, you know, after I stopped teaching the kickboxing, he actually ended up deciding that he didn't want to be with us here anymore and decided to take his own life. And so I always say that in 2006, the seed for the revival of Intakatmuk tattooing was planted. And then it was continued to be cultivated, that seed of the revival, through my undergraduate degree, researching our tattooing practices, researching what Keone was saying about the importance of the revival of Hawaiian tattooing. And so I was starting to think about all of those things. 
then the death of my young friend. And so it was at his funeral that I decided the revival of my ancestral cultural practice of tattooing was one of my responsibilities. That's connected to a story that I heard from one of my academic mentors, who is Jeanette Armstrong, Dr. Jeanette Armstrong. She's a SEAL or Okanagan academic. The story of the four food chiefs, and it's the story of how we were given the gift of the animal people's lives to survive. In the time before this time, the creator came to the animal people. And the animal people in that time could walk and talk and interact in the same way that we do today. And this was a time before we existed. And the creator came and asked the animal people, what will you do for the people to be? Because the reality is, is that us as human beings are not well adapted to our environment, especially where I'm from, where it's hella cold in the winter, you know, it's hella warm. Uh, we actually can't run that fast as an animal to capture other animals. We don't have sharp teeth. We don't have hair that will keep us warm. And so the creator asked, well, what will you do for the people to be? And then the four food chiefs, so the roots, the berries, the four-leggeds are those who walk on the earth. And then the salmon sat in a circle and started to uh, have that conversation. And so it was at my friend's funeral that I would say that it was the water from the tears of missing him that started to blossom the revival. And I realized that my answer to the creator's question for myself, for the people to be, was the revival of Intakatmuk tattooing. Thank you for sharing that. I just want to say, and I think it's important to share these stories, whether they're they're oral or or whether they're visual on someone's skin. I wanted to talk about your website and this project you're working on, indigenoustattooing.com, and just kind of how you see that contributing to this rooting process, or is that what you want this to do? Yeah, indigenoustattooing.com actually came to life through that undergraduate research where I asked the question, well, what visual representations exist of intricatum tattooing? And as I continued, I couldn't find any examples of photographs of our tattooing, of, but I kept finding references for other communities' practices. So representations of Cree tattooing, representations of Samoa, representations of all of these indigenous cultures across the world. And so I felt it would be important to uh, help in the uplifting of nations that are not my own, I could provide what I had learned from their communities and not claim it for my own, but put it out. So when someone else went to search for it, they didn't have to go through the hours of archival research. I could put them out there and they could access them because, you know, uh, living in the, the academic world, I have a lot of privileges that other people don't have. So I have to create reciprocity for the support that I've had to do my academic work. I have to give back to the community. So I provide that as all of the hours, putting those photos in, documenting them, uploading them so that uh, people from other communities have a resource as they move forward and start the conversation in their own communities. Yeah, I think that idea of open access is so important. And I also want to have you help us pronounce your native people's name for two reasons. One, because it's a struggle for us. And two, because I want listeners to be aware that not all languages use the same sounds. 
and I'm watching Dion's mouth move and listening the NL sound that you start off with, and then you've got glottal stops uh, according to the apostrophe in it. So could you say again? Yeah, and again, I would say that, uh, you know, this is my interpretation of what the elders have shared with me. So it's probably not perfectly correct, but it's inklakatm. Inklakatm. Yeah, Okay. So my question is, when you speak of your elders, what is the state of the inklakatm today? And is anyone doing this work besides you or with you? Or what's the community that you're working with in the state of Inklikatan people today and the revival? Give us a sense of what it is. So, uh, you know, in the beginning, I actually had a bit of pushback against the revival of our tattooing. And some people, community members were saying, you know, that's from the past and that belongs back there. And I know other cultural practitioners have had similar pushback. Part of that is because of the large presence of Christian denominations in our communities. However, what I ended up doing is just doing the work in communities around my community. And, you know, so the seal or uh, the Shwatm. And when people started to see the work that I was doing, and I was doing it in a good way, not in a way to claim it or to take it. I was doing it for a revival and a resurgence in our communities. Linda Tuhui Y. Smith, who is a Maori uh, academic and scholar, says that, you know, research in Indigenous communities is a dirty word. So, you know, I had to basically prove that what I was doing was for benefit and for a reciprocal relationship with the community, as opposed to an extraction process where I build up a career, become some famous academic and scholar in that sense, as opposed to giving back to the community. Because a lot of times you'll find academics will come and say, yes, we'll give back to the community, but that never ends up back in the community. Or those papers are written in a very academic language that, you know, our people don't get, right? You know, sometimes I'll read papers myself and I'm like, what the hell are these people talking about, right? So it's just being able to provide that reciprocity to the community is, is was so important. I'm not 100% sure of the statistics of how many native language speakers we have, but it's very few elders continue to hold that language knowledge. I would say, you know, of course, our community's language is in the endangered phase of language acquisition to younger generations, but I think we're working on that a lot. And, you know, a lot of times this question always comes up about what you're doing, it, you know, has to be definitely connected to the past. But I always make a point that, you know, we as Indigenous people, as Inflicatan people today, are contemporary people living in a contemporary world. And our practices will definitely not look the same as our ancestors' practices because we live in a very different world. So, you know, my ancestors lived in a world that was inhabited by the stories and the language which supported their identity as Inflicatan people. They didn't have to have this question of, well, who am I as an Inflicatan person? Because the story that was told around the fire in the Shishkin, in the pit house, in the winter ceremonies, uplifted who they were as Inflicatan people. 
Whereas today, our tattoos sometimes have different meanings and different ways of acting for us as people or Indigenous peoples in the world, because we are struggling through a process of colonization. So we're re-Indigenizing our practices, re-Indigenizing our own sense of who we are and our connection to the land. I was thinking about here in England, at least, you know, the last 10, 15 years and the kind of ebbs and flows in the popularity of different tattoo designs. And we've seen different tribal designs become really popular over different course of time. What are your thoughts on tattooing people who aren't in your community with your native designs? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a a long conversation that I think starts with the reality of how our lands were appropriated. The assumption that we as Indigenous people were not civilized enough to own land because our, our cultures were not up to the standard of what Western European ideas of what a civilization was. And so then you bring that through the process of colonization. I talked about the Indian Act. Then in 1884, I believe, one of the things that the Indian Act put forward, it was illegal for us to practice some of our traditional ceremonial practices like the potlatch or the gift-giving ceremonies. And on the Northwest Coast, a lot of the communities there, their tattooing practice was associated with the potlatch. And so now it becomes illegal for you to practice this thing. It was also illegal for us to uh, acquire funds or to get counsel to battle some of the land questions that were happening. So the appropriation of our lands. And then you look at, you know, the Indian Act also enacted forced residential schools. So that was a process where Indian children were taken from their families and put in the residential school to kill the Indian but save the man. And so the reason I tell all of that back history is that when I talk about cultural appropriation, it is connected to that history. So it's not just this is a tattoo design or a design that comes from my culture or my community. Those are connected to stories that talk about traditional use. So that's their law. If you looked at that crest and you knew how to read it, you know the story of where that person came from or that story connected to an ancestor that went back to the beginning of time. And then you look at some of our patterns here, uh, Interior Salish, some of those were, you know, they came to us in our dreams from our spirit helpers. You know, some of those those patterns or those designs were given to a medicine person to heal us or even to protect us against something. Um, So when I talk about cultural appropriation, it's understanding it within the context of us as Indigenous people coming from our own understanding of why it's inappropriate for people to use them who don't understand where that story comes from. So it's not just that this is a design. Well, no, it could be connected to a prayer. It could be connected to other things in our spiritual and our worldview. So if you just go ahead and take it, you're actually saying the same thing that the early so-called explorers said is that your way of seeing the world isn't good enough for me to acknowledge. And so that's kind of how I look at the question of cultural appropriation. And when I say that is, In some instances, my friend Nahan talks about it, and he's a Tlingit cultural tattoo practitioner and knowledge keeper. 
And he says that, well, this is my writing and my language and I can write it wherever the fuck I want. Indigenous people have the right to use their language however they see fit. And so a lot of times I'll gift designs and patterns to people that I have a connection to. And I know we'll wear it in a way that honors that design or that symbol. So, yeah, it's a very complex question. And a lot of people will say, well, I'm inspired by it. And I want to, you know, use it to move forward my own practice. So I always put this within the context of Picasso. You know, when you look at that famous painting of the women of the night, so to speak. And, you know, you could tell that the heads on those figures were from African masks. But when you look at that painting, you could never mistake those four African masks. So yes, be inspired by it, but create something new that isn't actually an imitation of what we're doing. No, I think I think that's really good advice for tattooing across the board, to be honest. I mean, you do sometimes see people just, you know, taking someone else's design, someone else's designs that they've spent, you know, put so much effort into. And I saw one maybe, you know, a year or two ago where they'd taken, someone had stolen a design from a chest piece and they'd accidentally copied the nipple in oh, as yeah, well. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, and I just <laughs> thought that just exactly what you say yeah take it be inspired by it but this is exactly why you don't want to copy well in that context anyway (laughs) yeah yeah, for sure there's definitely a connection there 100 percent. yeah so you know it's also a difficult conversation to have because you know and I always acknowledge that the reality is is that we're all learning and uh, you know I have some of my own culturally appropriated tattoos and so I have that conversation you know I got this when I didn't understand how important these things are. However, it's not the people necessarily who are wearing it that becomes the most challenging. It's the people who are applying them that don't have the knowledge that is appropriate to put it on the person. You know, I have uh, tattoos from Samoans. I have tattoos from uh, my Tlingit friends, my Nishka friends, but that is about relationship. That is about them having the knowledge to apply it in the most appropriate way it's connected to our cultural knowledge associated with those things and our right to do them to make a living for ourselves. So you're not just applying something, somebody is actually paying you for that pattern or that design, which you don't have the appropriate knowledge to put it on someone. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Speaking of these relationships that you've formed over the years, your website illustrates this beautifully. There's a number of indigenous cultural tattoo practitioners around the world. Is this a formal network that you're a part of, or is it, is it more of an informal grouping that spreading knowledge and sharing knowledge? I would say that it's an informal connection of practitioners because whether we're from any of these places, we have very similar experiences that help us as we move through those spaces where we are confronted with people who are taking our patterns, confronted with people who are using our designs in ways that are inappropriate. And I would say that a lot of times there's just one of us in each community. And so it's a lot of heavy work, you know, the burden of holding all of this stuff for our communities. So, you know, when we get together with people who have similar experiences, we have a greater ability to understand what each of us is going through. Then, you know, uh, when I come back to here, develop more formal relationships with 
the Earthline Tattoo Collective, which is a collective of Indigenous artists and cultural tattoo practitioners for the education of those people who are coming after, who want the knowledge of how to do the work in their communities of revival, but they don't know the most basic challenges of tattooing, including bloodborne pathogens, cross-contamination, all of these things that deal with the health aspects of tattooing. And so it was important for us to develop something formal in the training of people from communities across Turtle Island. And just speaking of this, this training and this education, it, it just came to me. How do you see, if you see it at all, this connection between revival of tattoo and this visual language with the revival of, of spoken language? I would say definitely they, they're definitely connected because the reality is, is if we're not tattooing, why would we need the traditional language of, say, a bone tattooing tool? Why would we need the traditional or our ancestral language around the inks or the plants that we're using. You know, so it's a revival, a resurgence of a multitude of other cultural practices associated with tattooing. Plus, I would also say that when you look at a lot of the literature that has to do with suicide in Indigenous communities, the eroding of people's self-worth contributes to the decision that I don't want to be here anymore. So that's one of the things that cultures do for people is help them to see how powerful the past was and how amazing the future could be. But if you don't have a sense of what that is because of the Indian Act, because of residential schools, because of the theft of your land, all of these different practices, those things contribute to the shrinking of your ability for resilience. I always argue that by embodying our cultures, we embody our relationships. So you can look down and you can see this tattoo connects me to my family and my community. And when I'm going through a hard time, I know that I have something to live for. And so it's an embodiment, I always say, of our ancestors' resilience. Hmm. So that's a nice segue. Can you tell us about this project that you have? It looks like funding from the Canada Council for the Arts, where you're soliciting folks to train. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the Canada Council of the Arts project is actually officially titled Taking Inthakatmuk Tattooing to the World. And so it's a multifaceted, multi-year project that has allowed me to, number one, start to research our visual language wherever I can find it. So I've been to five museums and this is from the funding from the Canada Council, to look at our basketry to patterns, to look at our painted clothing, and then to translate that into a visual dictionary. So that now, once that's done, I can then look at the academic literature. Oh, well, Tate was informed that this pattern means this. And so now I can take it back to the community once that's done and say, do we think this is true? Do we even want to share the interpretation of this specific symbol? Um, you know, if we don't want to, then it won't go into the visual dictionary. And then the question will be, how do we want to distribute this? Is this something that just goes to the community? Is this something that gets published in something larger? And then that transfers into the creation of what I'm calling Inflicotten Black Work. And so the taking of our basketry patterns, our painted clothing, and blowing them up to the size of the body. Because I think for me, it's important for us to keep our uh, cultural ancestral patterns in the placements that you would have seen them in the past. 
so that when I look at that and I see somebody on the street, I can go, ah, I know you're interior Salish because, and so I'm developing this full black work style from my community's visual material language. And then when we come to the tattoo medicine portion is just the way that we have continued to talk about this work that we do because it connects us to our land, connects us to our territory, connects us to those places that our ancestors' bones exist today. And so, you know, it was actually dangerous for some of our ancestors to be proud of who they were as Indigenous people, as Cree people, as Haida, as Intakatan. You know, that's another level of the medicine that we can be proud of who we are and stand up and uh, not have to worry about being looked down upon. Um, you know, my friend Corey Bulpit says, you know, his son is one of the first generations that's being taught in a long time that it is something to be proud to be a Haida person. So, you know, when I look out to my nieces and nephews, you know, I want them to live in a world like we used to have. And I would, James Tate says that at one time for the Anthocotton people, nobody over the age of puberty was without a tattoo. So everyone had a tattoo. So I want to get back to a place where we all have the tattoos that we should be wearing from our communities and our cultures. I have one more question. So I I had the privilege of meeting Keone Nunez, Lane Wilkin, and all in the same tattoo convention and seeing them work. And I I took away some amazing experiences from all of them. But watching Lane share the cultural knowledge, you know, the people he was tattooing were there was a an interaction. It wasn't just I hire you, you do this. And that, that struck me, and I've, I'm hearing a lot of uh, resonance between that experience and the way you are describing your work. So I was wondering if you could just tell us, if I go to HFX off the street, I'm a white guy, I'm me, you know, what's it like for me to walk in there and try to get a tattoo? Oh, it starts with a conversation, the same as anything, right? That is, you know, well, who are you? You know, what are you looking for? Okay, you want to get something that is cultural. Okay, well, let's look at why you want that. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's talk story about why that thing is important to you. And number one, is it appropriate for me to give you that? Because if it wasn't appropriate for me, I would send you to someone who it would be appropriate. So, oh, you're looking to get some MoCo work done. Oh, well, I have a bunch of friends you know, who do that type of work. So, you know, maybe you should go have a chat with them. So it's just basic conversation, you know, and assuming that you're stepping into that place in the most gracious and the most humble way to get that work done because it inspires you and it want, you want it to help you to move forward. And sometimes I may say, oh, well, I can't do that for you, but I could do this for you. So then, you know, saying this is what I could offer you from my own community, from my own culture, as a gift from who I am, and then we do that work. You know, when I heard you talking about Lane, it reminded me of a large part of what we're doing as cultural practitioners is a form of enculturation. Because there has, has been such a, a process of the destruction of our cultures or the steering away from our cultures, we are enculturating our people back to our communities, our cultures, our teachings, and our ways of living and being in the world. 
That's beautiful. Uh, I hope in a post-COVID world that um, I can stumble in and have this experience. I got to say, having gotten a lot of tattoos, I love all of the trappings around the ritual of getting a tattoo as much or more than the needle in my skin. Right? Yeah. That's that uh, I think you you articulated very well that reminds me of the full story I can tell yeah but when I look at it and someone asks me about it so so thank you Dion so much this has been amazing yeah thank you for inviting me I'm stoked to have a conversation and to talk about the things that I have some understanding of (laughs) thank you so much it's been really enlightening Well, thanks for everyone for listening. Take a gander at indigenoustattooing.com and we will post links to all of Dion's projects in our show notes. And until next time. Thanks for sharing, Dion. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You can find our show on Twitter at inking underscore immunity and on Instagram, and probably on Facebook at inking.of.immunity. The hosts of the show are me, Dr. Chris Lynn, Dr. Becky Owens from UK Sunderland, and our main man, Mike Smetana. Huge thanks to our new friend and guest today, Dion Kazaz. Also thanks to anyone else who helps on these episodes. We've got our producers, Patricia Arnett, Julius Bonholtz and our new program manager, Kira Yancey, making us all sound awesome. See you next time. <laughs>